my biggest advice to any person with disability, whether that's in the social sciences or whatever, is to persist. At the end of the day, if you, if you leave your, your life situation in the hands of other people, your life outcomes are gonna be very limited. You have to be at the forefront of pushing for your life. This is Kutsi Anaki, and welcome to another episode of Down to the Struts, the podcast about disability, design, and intersectionality. Today, we'll listen in on my conversation with Mamadi Kora, professor of sociology at East Carolina University. Professor Kora and I discussed his research on access for people with disabilities in the U.S. federal judicial system, his approach to disability and scholarship, and his advice for disabled people of color pursuing an academic path. If you want to learn even more about disability and the legal system, you should check out season four, episode four, Disabled in Court, and my interview with Erica Rickard of the Pew Charitable Trust about our report, how courts embrace technology, met the pandemic challenge, and revolutionized their operations. Okay, let's get down to it. Welcome, Professor Cora. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today. I'm delighted to have you here. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Wonderful. I would love it if you could start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and your personal story and what brought you to your scholarship on sociology and social psychology. As I mentioned at the introduction, I'm a professor of sociology here at East Carolina University. I'm also an immigrant. I'm visually impaired, but I'm also an immigrant from Gambia, West Africa. I came here to go to school as a high school student, and then I went on to get my different degrees. Um, So I would think that my ending up in sociology is probably just a natural thing, right? I came from a society, uh, a relatively poor society, relatively marginalized society. So I'm interested in issues of social inequality, issues of power and privilege and so on. Those are key topics in sociology. And so I think it just, it became a match. I did not intentionally go to sociology, just like we were talking about earlier, how did I end up in my scholarship in disability? My interest, if I were going to say what kind of area would I have picked, I think it would have been an an attorney arguing in a court. When I was a kid, I used to sit around in these courtrooms in Gambia, if I'm not in school, just, just listening to individuals argue cases. And I used to find that really fascinating, just these lawyers arguing their points and then someone wins and another one doesn't and so on. So 
if I were if I were to say then if my ideal my love what would I want to be when I grew up it would have been being a an attorney um, but that never happened um, for a variety of reasons so I ended up in majoring in business and sociology an undergraduate and then I did an MBA as a master's degree then I went got a PhD in sociology and that's how I ended up there. And my interest in my specific special area in social psychology was also, I guess, <laughs> also happened. Maybe all of these, I call them accidents, but maybe they just meant to be. But because I ended up in a department that specializes in social psychology and I was interested in micro inequalities. And so there I am. And up until recently, and we'll talk about this in a second, um, when you developed an interest in the legal system, what was the folk, what has the focus of your scholarship primarily been? Yeah, like I said, I'm a social psychologist. So I study, my area of, of study is in experimental social psychology, actually looking at micro processes. Like if you bring people into small groups, what happens between them? Like questions of who gets to talk more, who doesn't get to talk, what characteristics influence that. If you put people in bargaining situations, how is it that some get more than others and what qualities influence that? So that at the micro level, that's, that's one interest, right? Issues of inequality in small groups. That is actually my main area in social psychology. But then at the macro level, the bigger picture level, I, I'm interested in inequality in general, social inequality. And so I, I look at gender inequality, racial inequality, ethnic inequality, and I look at beliefs about race in the United States, beliefs about gender, the role of women in society. I've written in, on those kinds of topics and I've written on in some areas like marital happiness and how race and gender influence those. So, I mean, I have, I've, I've invested a wide area of, of topics, but I, I think if I wanted to just specifically say, I would say it is inequality, categorical inequality, gender, race, ethnic inequality. You, you add the immigration dimension to that as well. That's fascinating. And I've had the pleasure of, of reading some of your work and, and really found it illuminating on, on so many levels about all of the issues that you described. But the reason that we were brought together was we were introduced by Judy Human because of our mutual interest in access to justice and the legal system. Yeah. In 2018, you published your article about access for people with disabilities to the federal courts. What, what led you to that work? The way I ended up there was I got this fellowship and the fellowship was at the Federal Judicial Center in Washington, D.C. The Federal Judicial Center, of, of course, is the research wing of the federal judiciary. They basically do research on courts, the federal courts. And so I ended up there doing my fellowship there. And then an interest began to develop as to how accessible I U.S. courts. And I was tasked at looking at that that question uh, and I looked at it in a, in a variety of ways so that's how I ended up in that in that uh, looking at that particular topic and I was stunned as I read your work on this topic that 
the Rehabilitation Act and the Americans with Disabilities Act actually does not apply to the federal courts. Can you explain why that is? I, I, I think I can explain it in the sense that what I've heard. So I, it's, it's through, the, through the grapevine. It's not written. At least I haven't found it written. What I, what I understand it from someone there and other people that I talk to is that um, when Congress passes laws, frequently is trying to pass laws that apply to the executive wing, perhaps, and other areas of society. It tries to leave the judiciary there in deference to the judiciary as a co-equal branch. And so the, the federal judiciary actually has a policymaking body called the Judicial Conference of the United States. And they make, a, they make policy for, for that courts. And those policies are basically legally binding on courts. So they make their own rules. But what I, what I again, what I, what I understand it to be is that a lot of those laws are in deference to separation, to, to maintain the separation of powers. The judicial conference may not have to conform or comply with the provisions, the anti-discrimination and accommodation provisions of the ADA or the Rehab Act. But did you find that the, the conference itself developed its own framework for uh, advancing access for people with disabilities in the federal courts? Yeah, what I found that it was limited to employment and communication accessibility in terms of communication and communication there is more specific to hearing impairment communications. And so they do have policy towards those two areas. So it turns out that Congress actually did pass a couple of laws that, are, that apply to all courts and those two laws are in that area. And then the, so the <laughs> interesting thing is that the Judicial Conference modeled its, what applies to it its rules around those two laws that are actually applicable to them. And you also did an assessment of the federal court websites to examine their level of accessibility. What did you find in your in your research there? A couple of things. Uh, first of all, I, what I did was first of all run these automated tests of websites that gives you their assessment tools that you can use that that allows you to say. To, to identify, uh, you know, generic accessibility issues. And then added to that, I did a content analysis. I went to different, all the websites, federal court websites, a hundred plus or so websites to look at, um, to play with their, their sites. First of all, to look at which sites have uh, accessibility links on them or not, direct links, where if you go to the website and it says, here's a direct link, it says accessibility or accommodations or whatever. And ones that have indirect links, indirect links meaning um, if you really look around and click on some link, inside that link will take you to a, a statement about accessibility and so on. So I did a content analysis and then I look at some of their policy statements on that. And I think a few things I found was with the websites themselves, one of the key issues that they had was difficulties with forms, right? They have, they have, they have developed these forms where you, you fill them online. And sometimes it's difficult to fill those forms 
online. They're not, some of them are not particularly accessible to allow you to fill it out and complete it by yourself. Mm-hmm. So that, that was one of the issues. And one of the other issues was when graphs are present on websites, some of the graphs do not have any text associated with them. So, so me as a visual impaired person, if I go there, I really wouldn't know what, what I'm dealing with because it doesn't have alternative text. So those are a couple of things. The, the other thing that, that I found was how limited number of websites, I think if I recall correctly, it was like 15% or so that, that had direct or indirect links to accessibility issues. That's quite a low number. Yeah, and, and that doesn't seem surprising considering that the judicial conference's focus when it came to people with disabilities was inward, right? It was focused on employment. It was focused on access for staff and judges, not so much accessibility for the general public. Is that is that right? Yeah, I think it's correct. For the most part, courts have actually just focused on physical access for the most part, because that has been the most important issue. And in that area, there's actually a law that applies to all courts that says that buildings have to access, be accessible. And a lot of courts have tried to do that. Part of the problem there is that some courts are also historical. Some courts are also historical buildings and they want to maintain that. And some of those historical buildings do not allow for accessibility. So, so in general, yes, you are. But I think part of the problem with that is that they, they are internal because Federal courts seldom, I shouldn't say seldom, but federal courts have a limited number of publics, individuals coming through them. Mm-hmm. A lot of the, the nitty gritty of, of laws and arguments and this all happen at the state level. Right? So mm-hmm. federal courts are dealing with federal issues. And, and so in that sense, then that, that really limits um, the, the type of actions that are done in them. And it also, I guess, limits the amount of people that come in there. Especially so the number of people. We- yeah, especially in the number of people who are not represented. I would imagine in a federal case, it's more likely that there's a, there are two lawyers on yeah. either side. Yeah. And so, for, so, for example, the Supreme Court, I mean, generally, it's just the, the, the lawyers that are arguing the case. I mean, parties might show up, but they don't have to show up. I mean, the Supreme Court doesn't go around, you know, people arguing and questioning people, right? You just go there and make your argument. So it's usually the two sides that, that are represented there. Right. But then there is also the, then there tends to be this opacity, right, for members of the public, specifically members of the public with disabilities who want to understand yeah. what's going on in, in court proceedings in the federal courts. Yeah. 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 And you also interviewed judges and court staff as well to get their perspectives about um, access for people with disabilities. And what did you find in those interviews? Yeah, those were, for the most part, individuals, uh, several of them themselves were uh, also with a disability. So mm-hmm. visual impaired, hearing impaired. And there were some specific issues as to, you know, document, access to documents and access to um, captioning <laughs> was one of the, one of the, some of the issues that, that, um, that came up in some of those discussions. But more broadly, I think what came up out of them is people's sense of, of, of the fact that there are very limited number of persons with disabilities in federal courts. 
just in terms of judges, court judges, staff. and so on. So, for example, when I um, when I looked at how many judges, uh, federal judges that that are there in the federal courts, I think I was able to locate two visually impaired judges at the wow. federal level. Only two in the whole federal court system, and I wasn't able to find any that's hearing impaired or deaf. And what about other disabilities? There are um, there are some with physical disabilities that, you know, mobility impaired mm-hmm. individuals that are that are present. But these are the, these two are the ones that are notably absent. That's really striking, considering as we were discussing earlier, it's such a significant and growing portion of our population. Do, you, do I wonder though, is it that um, very few actually openly identify that perhaps there are judges with different types of visual impairments or hearing impairments, but they simply don't identify as such? Yeah, that, that, that might be an issue. Um, I think someone pointed out in one of those interviews that in some, in some instances that might be uh, someone, for example, might be hearing impaired, but their hearing impaired isn't considerably notable that they don't identify themselves as such. Mm-hmm. So between your review of, you know, essentially policy and rules related to disability access, the review of the websites and these interviews that you conducted, what were some of your key takeaways from this research? Yeah, one of them I already mentioned, that is the, the limited number of individuals in court personnel, because what a lot of those individuals express was one of the ways you can, you can dispel attitudes about persons with disability is to have individuals present. If you have a visual impaired or hearing impaired or physically impaired individuals that are judges, then it, would, it wouldn't be a novelty anymore. If you have a significant amount of them, it wouldn't be a novelty anymore. So a lot of individuals raise that issue of the absence of persons with disabilities in the federal judiciary and that that that's one of the key things that, that, that needs work done to improve. The other part of it is the, the second aspect that I found was, second takeaway was how unaware a lot of people are about existing technology that's out there to help individuals with disabilities do their work. Mm-hmm. Frankly, it's, it's usually the individual that's working that knows some about his or her technology and the rest of the people around them have very limited knowledge about the technology that's available there. And the point there being, there's a significant amount of technology that's out there right now that allows persons with disabilities to do their job, I think quite effectively, right? When I was going to school, most of my stuff was read on cassettes. Now, I sit on my computer and I can just I can just go online and download a book or download an article and I could just read it. I don't need anyone else anymore, mm-hmm. right? Technology has made that available. I mean, uh, possible. And so you want to wonder, you wonder, how is it that seventy to eighty percent of persons with visual impairment are not working? Because the technology certainly allows them to do so. 
And in the context of the federal judiciary, based on what you found and some of the takeaways you just described, what do you think the institution can do to to make uh, make sure that there is access for disabled people and that disabled people are represented? I mean, one of the obvious ones is appoint more disabled judges. But is there anything else that you think can be done to make this this system more open for people with disabilities? I guess part of the, one 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 of the things commitment to the whole issue of access. As, as I mentioned, the federal courts tend to focus on the two laws that applies to them, and then their policies are developed around those laws. It would be nice if they would just generalize that to just being more open to accessibility. And I'm not suggesting that they're not, because I, I really have found them that federal courts, unlike many areas, to be open to discussing accessibility issues, I think. If, if they have problems, most of the problems are at the state level as opposed to the federal level. Yeah, and that's what we observed in our, in our earlier episode that folks can uh, check out my interview with Erica Rickard um, about state civil courts and their, how they have addressed access for people with disabilities. And It would be unfair, though, to the states to say what I, what I just said, so I want to qualify it because, like, again, they carry the bulk of cases mm -hmm. out there. The federal courts do not, right? A very limited percentage of cases find themselves at the, at the federal level. So it's, it's not surprising that they don't have to deal with a lot of the accessibility issues that state, state courts and local courts have to deal with. Or at least they do, they do not. Whether they have to or not is a different question. Right. But the same the same logic you described applies if you if you operate from a premise of your design principle is that we must build and create access, uh, then then it's le it feels less like you're just tacking on a solution yeah. uh, that's not integrated with the rest of the, the way the system works. Yeah. So you just brought out an important point, because one of the other things that a lot of people talked about is that People deal with the disability issues on a case-by-case -case basis rather than on a universal principle basis. I come along and I, I need help and um, I'm visually impaired and they figure out how do I accommodate this individual. Um, a better approach would, would be to have in place accommodations that are more universal than any time someone comes up that needs something and you come up with a, with a plan to help that individual, but it's only specific to that individual. And after completing this work, which as we talked about earlier, was a bit of a departure from your, your true sort of uh, original areas of scholarship, how do you think this experience of looking at an institution like the judiciary and access for disabilities might inform other, your other areas of work that you do? One, one of the ways it has, it has informed it is a lot of times now, since I've done this work, I've, I've been asked by people different questions when they have issues, when they have to, when, they, when questions come up that are having to deal with accessibility, people are asking me about what, what would be my opinion, what do I think? And so it, it, it's, it's informing it in that respect, but, it's also informed that I've, I've now made this 
particular topic as part of my scholarly interests. And so um, I, I plan on continuing doing work in this area as, uh, as well. If, you, if you're able to share what sort of pieces of this are creeping up into your, into your future or um, your future endeavors, um, what's next in this uh, exploration of, of disability for you? One of the things I want to, I want to broaden that, um, the interviews that I did just looked at internal individuals in the, for the most part. Mm-hmm. I want to broaden that to persons with disabilities that are, for example, in the public. I looked at a lot, talked to a lot of people within the judiciary, right, the federal judiciary, but I didn't look at public access, you and I. Mm-hmm. So I, I would want to talk to individuals about that. The other area that I would want to look at is, I think that has less to do with access, but perhaps more to do with employment of individuals, disabilities, what makes their work, what makes them able to do their work more efficiently and not more efficiently. So one of the things that I've, that I've gathered in this investigation is the different types of technologies that people use, right, to do their work. And I want to do a survey, for example, of those technologies so that I could put it out there to say, this is the kind of technology that, that has worked for visually impaired people who have succeeded in their areas of work, hearing impaired people who have succeeded in their work. These are the types of technologies that have worked for them. I think that would be really useful and and sort of demystifying, right, for the non-disabled employer who probably has perceptions that technologies, uh, access technologies are expensive or complicated, or um, sometimes it's often very simple things. and that's exactly right, because mm-hmm. uh, the other day I went to talk to a, a place where um, I was interviewing for, for something and the person was focusing on what, what, do, what do we need? What facility do we need? He, kept, he keeps asking me, what facility do we need to accommodate you? And in reality, the, he's, he's thinking about expensiveness of those facilities, but things have become so cheap, right? A scanner now is like $50. $50. You could get a good scanner. Scanner, Sorry. Right. So the technology has become really, really cheap. And so it's, it's important to let not only let people know what technology has worked, but how cheap that technology is today. As we're wrapping up, Professor Cora, I'd love for you to share what advice you have for a disabled student who's interested in pursuing academia, pursuing a degree in sociology. What what advice would you have for them? Uh, my, my biggest advice to any person with disability, whether that's in the social sciences or whatever, is to persist. At the end of the day, if you, if you leave your, your life situation in the hands of other people, your life outcomes are going to be very limited you have to be at the forefront of pushing for your life, right? I grew up in a society where persons of visual, that are visually impaired are not meant to succeed. They're not meant to do anything, actually. In, in many instances, they're just begging in the streets, right? So grow up from that society to going all the way to the professorship, I think that 
requires some persistence. It requires ignoring when people tell you that you cannot do this, right? Knowing what you can do and what you cannot do, right? But if you know you can do something, insisting on being able to do that, as opposed to listening to someone telling you that you can't. So I think those would be my general advice to persist. If you're interested in academia to know that there are people out there who have succeeded and that you can talk to, folks like myself. Thank you for that advice. That's a very important uh, piece of wisdom that you're leaving us with. And I will be delighted to share more information about you and your work on our website uh, so people can, can read more of your scholarship. So thank you so much, Professor Cora. I, I really appreciate your time. Thank you. I'm happy that you invited me. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Down to the Struts. This podcast would not be possible without the energy and creativity of our audio producer, Alana Nevins, and our social media manager, Avery Annapole. Special thanks to Claire Shanley for designing our logo and to Eiffel Gangsta Beats for our theme music. You can become part of our Facebook group, Down to the Struts podcast, to join our growing community, you can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Down to the Struts. And finally, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you love to listen. Thank you again for your support and stay tuned for our next episode so we can get back down to it.